Welcome to the NASPP's Equity Expert Podcast Series. My name is Kathleen Cleary, and I'm the Education Director for the NASPP. Today, our podcast is entitled Equity Compensation Outliers. Are they really doing that? And we're going to be speaking with Fred Whittlesey from Compensation Venture Group. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this podcast is actually one of a series of podcasts on interesting and educational topics primarily related to equity and careers in equity. If you'd like to access the entire podcast series, you can go to naspp.com and go to Equity Expert, and you can subscribe also to the podcast series, and then you'll get an email whenever we post a new podcast episode. As I mentioned, today we'll be speaking with Fred Whittlesey, founder and principal consultant of Compensation Venture Group, which is a consulting firm specializing in compensation strategy, director and executive compensation, equity-based compensation, and incentive design with a primary focus on entrepreneurial growth companies. Fred also provides expert witness services for compensation-related litigation and he's a faculty member at Seattle Pacific University, where he teaches graduate level courses in total reward systems, as well as serving as faculty advisor for student special projects. Fred is a writer for the investor education website, Investor Junkie, and also an advisor to the equity solutions firm, Mastly. Fred is a founding member of the NASPP. He's former president of the Orange County chapter, He's also a former member of our NASPP Advisory Board, and he was past chairman of the Advisory Board for the Certified Equity Professional Institute. Fred received his MBA with distinction from the Anderson School at UCLA and graduated Phi Beta Kappa and Magna Cum Laude from San Diego State University with a BA in Industrial and Organizational Psychology. He holds the Certified Equity Professional designation Certified Executive Compensation Professional, and Certified Compensation Professional designations. Well, quite a resume. Welcome to the podcast, Fred. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you, Kathleen. And I liked your introduction about not only this being a technical discussion of equity compensation, but also the career focus, because I think there are some elements in here that will help our professionals with their career. Well, great. Uh, Looking forward to it. Let's go ahead and dive in. So what do you mean by an equity outlier? So I assume anyone listening to this podcast knows the equity part. Let's focus on what an outlier is. Now, there's a statistical definition, which is if you're outside of the interquartile range by this much, one and a half times, that's not an explanation that you're going to give an executive when they walk down the hall and try to understand your equity compensation plan. There is a more practical definition. And I'm going to reference something I just saw last week. Barb uh, did a blog on the CEO pay ratio, and it referenced a Bloomberg article. Go to her blog and click on the Bloomberg part. And it says the median CEO pay ratio is 140x. Okay, that's interesting, but does that mean we should be at 140? This is my interest in this topic because we tend to see these headlines about what the median is or the average is, and somehow we think we should be doing that. But if you click through on this chart, 
through Barb's link and through Bloomberg, and this is very timely, the range of CEO pay ratios ranges from 0% of the median to 2,000% of the median. Now, the range we see in most survey data is not that extreme, but yet anything outside of the range, we're concerned that, oh, that's not normal and we shouldn't be doing that. So an outlier is like a state of mind. It's like, well, how far outside of the norm are you comfortable or uncomfortable with? And we're going to drill into that in this discussion. Yeah, Fred, I think you're referring to the blog that Barbara Baksha uh, published. Uh, it's actually the May 14th blog on our NASPP website. So it's naspp.com and just search for blogs and you will come across that article. It was very interesting and it was certainly the the definition of outliers, some of the interesting uh, CEO pay ratios that Barbara came up with. So you kind of gave us a little teaser there, Fred. So why are you so interested in, in outliers as it applies to equity compensation? I've been consulting for a long time and I've worked in several firms very closely with the data and survey groups. I'm a data guy going back to the earliest moments of my career. And I also do a lot of proxy research. And if you look at the surveys and the proxy databases, they tend to put out the data that gives you the norm and the reasonable range of what you see. But I like to really drill into it because I think that is where the really interesting practices are. And this is why I think it's an important career point for our equity compensation professionals. An executive walks down the hall and says, what are other companies doing? Well, we can say, well, here's the median, here's the average, here's the safe area. But something that's always bothered me about the way data gets reported is that we exclude these so-called outliers. If any company is too far outside this median range, we think there must be something wrong. But that's where I think there might be something right in terms of maybe there's some creativity, some innovation, some real tailoring to company strategy, which we all talk about, but then we say, oh, here's the median, let's do that, that is safe. So one of two things happen, I've noticed, when companies report their data, and the data is crazy, like 0% or 2,000%, the survey firms either say, ah, it's an outlier, let's exclude that, that's crazy, we can't include that in our data, it'll mess up our average, or, they put them in the so-called, quote, other category. And the other category is what I'm really interested in. It's like, what do you mean by other? What's going on in there? Let's learn about what these so-called other firms are doing because maybe that provides us with some insights about the creativity going on in the equity compensation design. Absolutely. Maybe the wave of the future. And if you disregard it, you're missing it. So what led you to think about this particular topic and to you know, think about it as it applies to equity compensation? Well, in, in working with clients, I find there's this gravitation toward the middle. And some will refer to this as the homogenization of equity compensation design. Let's all be the same. Let's not be too far outside the norm. And then we're safe. And I think this gets reinforced by board of directors compensation committees that can be some uh, somewhat risk averse. 
which makes the consultant somewhat risk averse. And then it feeds on itself. If we all want to be at the median and we gravitate toward the median, we know what happens. Well, the median is defined as the point where half are above and half are below. So by definition, you can't all be at the median. So there's this feeding on itself of let's stay safe, stay in the middle. But I know from my research and really drilling down that there are these firms that are on the outside. And to me, those are fascinating. I find stuff that if I tell clients that, like do people really do that? Do companies really do that? That's my title. Are companies really doing that? They are. No, there's not 50% of the companies doing that. Maybe there's 10% of the companies doing that, but wouldn't you like to know what that is? And why? So here's an example. Let's say your executive comes down the hall and says, oh, I was in a board meeting yesterday and somebody asked about our vesting schedule. And what are co other companies doing about a vesting schedule? Do we really spend any time on that? And if you look in the surveys, ah, yeah, Pete, uh, most companies have a three or four year vesting schedule. That's normal. Okay, we're all done with that discussion. Maybe a few have a five year vesting schedule. But when I look at the survey, and you'll see this in the NASPP equity survey, most companies have three or four years, maybe some have five, and there's this other category. Well, who's in there? And I have found, you can't tell that from the survey because you just go, oh, there's this other category, I don't know what that is. But what if that's 10% of the company population and there's a thousand companies? That's a hundred companies that are doing this other thing. So let's, I, I like to use a vesting schedule because people ignore this. They just think, ah, oh, it's three or four years, we're done, let's just do it. What if you found a company that gives new hire grants with immediate vesting? You go, that's crazy, nobody does that. Well, actually, a company does that. What if you found, at the other end of the other spectrum, a company that grants options with 10-year cliff vesting. Well, it's crazy. Nobody does 10-year cliff vesting. Yeah, they do. I did an analysis for a client, 25 companies. And what do you think the normal vesting schedule was? Eh, three to four years annual vesting. Maybe in the biopharma sector, you'd have some uh, one-year cliff and then monthly. I found in these 25 companies, there were 40 different vesting schedules. Now, if they respond to a survey, like the NSPP survey, what do we do with that data? Yikes, that doesn't fit in our categories. Let's put them in other. So the takeaway is that equity compensation design is far more varied than our surveys would lead you to believe. Nothing wrong with the surveys. We need to know what the norm is. But apply that across the universe of companies and you would be amazed at the creativity going on. Now, this is not just with vesting schedules. It's with performance conditions. No, not everybody is just doing TSR. It's with option strike prices, post-termination forfeitures. I could go through, kind of long, which we don't have, just about any aspect of equity compensation design and show you that, yes, there's a median, there's a norm, and let me tell you about some 
crazy outsiders, these outliers, that might cause you to think, huh, I wonder why these companies do that, and I wonder if our company should be thinking outside the norm. Yeah, you did a great power session at our conference last year, Fred, and, and you had quite a number of equity outliers that you mentioned. So you've talked about vesting schedules. What are some of the other ones that you find? So here's another one that I think we take for granted. If we're still granting options, and yes, most companies have moved to RSUs, but I have a lot of claims that still grant options, and there are a lot of companies that still do. What is the norm? Well, we grant at fair market value, right? Of course we do. And there's a few companies that have made the headlines that we think are really radical because they granted premium strike price options at maybe 10% of fair market value. That made the headlines. What if there was a company that granted options where the strike price was triple the current fair market value? Oh, that's insane. Nobody does that. Actually, they do. What if there was a company that granted options with a moving strike price? Now all the accountants are listening to that saying, oh my gosh, accounting problem. <laughs> <laughs> Not an accounting problem, it's an accounting issue, but what if you granted options with a strike price that only locks in if a financing event occurs within the next 90 days? That'll, that would make most equity compensation professionals head explode because, wow, that's complicated. That's got securities issues and accounting issues and tax issues. But a company does that. What if a company grant, here's the wildest one I know of, company grants options when you start the company, immediately vested. You get fired two weeks later because it was not a good fit. You're fully vested. What happens to those options? Well, what have we been taught in our field? Well, those options expire 90 days after termination. Why? Because that's what's embedded in the ISO rules. What if those options did not expire until the end of the 10-year term? So you go to work for a company, get options, get fired, and now you have these options for 10 more years. Would anybody do that? Oh, yeah, one company did. Was there a logic to that? There was. It ties in to their entire company culture, their entire compensation strategy. And in our power session, it was a 20-minute session, uh, about as long as we have now or less. But there are so many examples, and you're not going to find them by looking at a survey. You have to drill down. And again, I'm a proxy statement lover. I could delegate this to my associate. I would rather read the footnotes of a proxy statement because therein lies all the really juicy examples of, yeah, they all got options, they all got RSUs, that's the norm. But what are the really detailed provisions of these options and these RSUs? Those are the outliers. And I think we can learn from those. We can go back to the executive who watched the law and says, you know, yes, most companies do this, but you know what? We're different. We're a different kind of company. Let's think outside the box. And I found some examples that maybe we want to think about and see that into the executive's mind going, huh, so we can be creative. The answer is yes, you can be creative. And 
Will ISS like it? Eh, maybe or maybe not. It gets back to the broader issue, which we don't have time for. Who are your shareholders? What do they care about? And can you be creative with how you grant equity, not just to executives, but all your employees? ISS doesn't really look at the features of all your employees. They look at your exact. You have a lot of discretion here to be creative. And I like to encourage people in our field to not get locked into this model that, oh, if ISS likes this and this is what our consultants tell us, we can't do anything else or something bad will happen. You know, that's so true, Fred. And you mentioned careers earlier as you were speaking. I was thinking, you know, we're in a really good employment market right now, and there may be certain types of talent that are difficult for companies to attract. So maybe some of these more creative type equity grants would be what they need to consider to get the right talent that they need to advance the company. Well, you're absolutely right. And that's what I say. I'm in Seattle, which is arguably one of the hottest talent markets in the country, along with the Bay Area and a few others. But things are just on fire here, uh, despite all the rain. And <laughs> companies are having to figure out, well, how do we get these people and there's all this talk about the millennials want other things. And it's not just dogs at work and hot tubs and all that. It's, okay, you're going to give me stock. We have a company here in Seattle, talk about an outlier, that has a five-year vesting schedule. Now, what comes to mind when you say five-year vesting? 20% per year over five years, right? That's the norm. Five years is kind of long. I think in our field, we're accustomed to three or four years. So some companies, given the impatience of the millennials, are saying, ah, oh, they want more stock sooner. They want 40% in the first year and 30% in the second year. And we have companies doing that. It's like give these people more faster because they want stuff faster. And we know they're not going to stay there for 10 years, so that's how you pay them. We have a company that says five-year vesting, 5% vesting in the first year. What? That's crazy. Then what happens? 10% vesting in the second year. What? I work here two years. I'm only 15% vested. Yep. Because they have huge turnover after two years for a different compensation reason that I won't go into. Okay. Third year. I must get it all by now. Nope. You get another 20% now. So you've been in three years and you're still not half vested. And it all vests at the back end. Okay, that's a crazy outlier. Do they attract talent? They do. They're a crazy growing company. They dominate Seattle. And they do things with cash that offset the outlier vesting schedule. Now, given that Seattle is still kind of a small town despite its size, I talk to a lot of new hires from this company, and they say, yes, I got this massive RSU grant from this company. And I say, really, what's the vesting schedule? You go, uh, I, I didn't really look at that, but I got this gazillion dollar RSU grant. But you don't know what the best schedule is. Guess what? You work for an outlier and you don't even know it. So it is important. You're right, Kathleen. It's a, a recruiting issue, a talent management issue. But this is an example of how you craft your strategy and you say, I don't care what the median is. I don't care what the average is. We have this unique approach to bringing people in, mixing with cash, and we do something different. And 
it's been pretty successful. Very interesting. I guess a lot of people are doing a lot of different things and investing schedules. You mentioned all kinds of different outlier areas. So as we start to think about wrapping up this podcast, any final thoughts that you want to include? There is. And I think, again, from a career perspective, we get trained a certain way. We sometimes are pressured into what is the norm? We don't want to be outside the norm because ISS might not like us. But I would say to our professionals, if you want to be an outlier in your field, hopefully an outlier on the F side, if you want to be a creative leader, don't be constrained by the survey data. Keep an eye on the, the crazy media stories. And almost every day I see some media story that says, this just happened, and the media headlines are almost always wrong, rule number one. A great example to close with, here in Seattle, the question by city always is, who were the highest paid executives last year, right? And we have this guy, was a guy in this case, not always, made, uh, was paid, in quotes, $30 million last year. Highest paid CEO in Seattle. Wow, more than the CEO of Starbucks, more than the CEO of Microsoft. Who is this guy? Well, he works for a cannabis firm here, uh, which is a really emerging market, especially in a state like Washington. And it's like, okay, he was paid $30 million. What does that mean? Read the proxy. 2.7% of his pay was cash. The other 97.3% was stock options. Whoa. There's an outlier, and I got called by the Seattle Times to comment on this because the headline is, this person made $30 million last year. Yeah, but it's all in options, and it's a fascinating story. So what's going to happen to some equity compensation professionals is one of your executives is going to come down the hall and say, oh, my gosh, I'm like this person, and they made $30 million last year. Why didn't I? I only made $10 million. And you do get those questions. I hear these questions coming through my clients, and they get this kind of pressure, like, what's going on that somebody made this much? you got to drill down. You've got to read the proxy statement. Your question is not going to be answered by the story in the media. It's not going to be answered by the survey. Take some time. You all know how to get a proxy statement on Edgar. Read about it, and you can be the value-added professional Maybe your CFO doesn't have time to know. Maybe your director of global compensation doesn't have time to know. You say, hey, I checked this out. Look at how unusual this company is. Do we want to reference Tilray, the cannabis company, or do we want to reference Starbucks or Microsoft? There's a big range there, and we can all learn from that. And it's a lot of fun because we should all be having fun at our job. Well, I couldn't agree with you more there. And, you know, it's interesting. We don't always need to do the same old thing, right? There's not any innovation if we all, surveys are great and we have, a, you know, we do a great survey every year at the NESPP and those, it's great data to refer to, but that's not where innovation necessarily comes from. I don't want to downplay the survey data. It no. is important because there is such a focus on what is the norm, what is the central tendency there is a desire for safety right now, but you know, there, there, I always say, 
looking at survey data is looking in a rear view mirror, but you're also like a pirate with an eye patch. You're only seeing one eye on what happened in the past, and there's a lot more. So balance both. Here's what everybody's doing. Everybody wants right. to be safe, but let's not lose track of really creative stuff going on in our industry because there really is some amazing stuff going on. Absolutely. And you mentioned headlines. That's always a great way to know and balance it, like you said, against surveys. What is everyone else doing? Does it work for our company or not, you know, with with our growth uh, in mind? So great advice. Very interesting outliers, Fred. Uh, I'm sure our listeners uh, learned a lot today. I know I certainly did. So I just want to tell you thanks so much for sharing your knowledge and your expertise with all of us today. I really appreciate your time. And I just want to say thank you also to everyone who listened in. And I just want to remind everybody that they can access all the podcasts in the Equity Expert series at naspp.com forward slash Equity Expert. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.